and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and I'm Dave. And um, if you guys haven't heard, I'm sure most of you have heard that uh, Chris uh, died, you know, probably about a month ago now, or three weeks ago, and um, I've decided to try to keep doing the show uh, as best as I can, and uh, do a bunch of uh, Chris-centered episodes, and this is one of those. I am in my attic... Um, in my new house, I was sequestered into the attic because, uh, my partner was like, I, she wouldn't let me record in the dining room. She wanted to run of the house with the children and I, and I threw a fit. I was screaming and yelling, uh, that I should be able to record the show in the dining room, that it's really important, that it's too hot in the attic. But as it turns out, the attic is really nice. It's like I'm overlooking the backyard. There's a little bit of a breeze. It's probably like 95 degrees, but who cares? Nobody's here. I have a desk. It's very, very comfortable. I think I'm going to use this attic as much as I can. So I wanted to read some stuff that you guys sent in about Chris. I'm going to start with uh, one of his favorite uh, Dopey Nation members, Dopey listeners, Leah Lemberg. And she wrote, uh, Dave, I just don't know what to say. I can't believe it's been a week. This is a week when uh, she wrote this. And I've still been processing Chris's death. It must sound trivial given that I didn't know him in person. But like every other Dopey Nation member has said, I really feel like I had a deep connection with him and through the stories that he told. He was helpful in chatting with me and providing perspective when my husband relapsed too. And I think that recent experience is what makes Chris's death so jarring. How the fuck do two extremely intelligent people who are working with with addicts who have years of schooling, specifically in counseling psychology, who have years in sobriety, how do they go back out? It's so incredibly frustrating. And I know that you can't think yourself sober. I know it takes daily work and a commitment to being sober, but it still makes me so sad and presently just so damn angry. You're right. Chris had nothing but a life of possibilities ahead. It's it's just such a shame. I'm just rambling, I know, but I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for this podcast and the community that you and Chris have created. It means more to me than I ever realized. I'm so glad I got to meet you, even briefly. Keep doing what you're doing. And Chris, if there is a heaven or a highlight reel you're watching, and there's Access Facebook Messenger where that is, there's Access Facebook Messenger where that is, you are so missed, I love you both. And that's Leah, and... um, I know Chris always uh, loved Leah and uh, always wanted Leah to uh, be a part of the show and always was wondering what Leah thought of stuff. And I was going to set up a dopey closed group right before Chris died and Leah was going to be the administrator. And then after Chris died, this guy Andrew uh, set up a closed group called the Dopey Nation where a lot of you might be right now. And it's pretty cool. I'm glad you guys are doing it. Um it's like uh, humbling, to say the least, to see, uh, you know, that me and Chris created this thing and, um, and it's been so well received. I mean, all of the, the messages that we've gotten from you guys, it's just nuts. It's crazy. Here's a, a voicemail we got from a super dopey regular Cormac. I'm going to play that now. What's up, Dave? What's up, everybody? This is Cormac. I can't believe this. So sad about it. And uh, anyway, I just want to share a few things I remember. Uh, 
Back in March of 2016, I got picked to write the email on this daily email list where a few thousand people got it every day. I know Chris has told this story too. And uh, I wrote about an experience plugging MXE and DPT. And Chris wrote an email to me saying something like, uh, man, I used to be into all that research chemical stuff too. You should check out our podcast. And, uh, so that was, uh, I think the first one I listened to was when Chris ate too much LSD and got lost in the city in his boxers. That was a good one. So I was hooked right away. And I realized Chris and I had a lot in common. Well, we both were obsessed with drugs and pharmacology and probably read half the experience reports on Arrowhead and just so curious about consciousness and experimented on our consciousness. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I really could relate to him that way. And it was cool to hear somebody else who had experienced that. It's like not something you run into people every day who've, who've done that. But, uh, you know, I was using, and uh, I would I, I would get so mad when you guys would start talking recovery and just, like, resentful about it. And, uh, you know, shit got crazy for me. I was taking a lot of dissociatives, and, and uh, it finally hit the fan. And, uh, and from, from listening, I just thought, well, this... 12-step shit has worked for you guys, and, and uh, I'll give it a shot. I got to do something. I knew I had to change. And uh, so I started going to meetings, and I've been really lucky. Uh, I just found some peace, and I really owe so much of it to Chris for reaching out and to you, Dave, and to everybody who sends their stories in and shares their, their, uh, experience. And, you know, I miss Chris. I'm going to miss him forever. And I'm just happy that we still have everything he shared. And I still can feel the feelings that he's given me and I'll always be able to to get back to that and that's real it's not imaginary like that's something all of us have and we carry with us and you know this this disease sucks and the only thing that's free in this world is love that's it and we just gotta help each other all right, that was Cormac. He didn't even finish with a Stay Strong Dopey Nation. But uh, it's very beautiful, and Cormac has always been a big part of the show. He set up our Reddit page, and he's a buddy of mine, and he's a musician. He sent in different songs. And um, it's so moving to see all these messages and all these people that we kind of just made friends with, you know, uh, virtually made friends with. Uh, we got an email from... Uh, one of my favorite uh, Dopey Nation members, fucking the great Joey Pepper. And uh, Joey Pepper wrote, Dave, wow. I don't even... Hello? 
shit. My bad. Uh, we're about to have a special caller, so I'm kind of nervous that my phone is not working. Uh, it's a very, very, very exciting call. Uh, give me a second. It's very weird because Chris would be able to do stuff while I was taking care of stuff, so the show's going to be a little bit broken for a bit. Bear with us while it's broken. Joey Pepper wrote, Dave, um, wow, I don't even know what to say. I've always fucked with you guys, especially Chris, but I've always been a fan, and I fuck, man. I don't even know. Sorry, man. So sorry for your loss. The Dopey Nation's loss. Wow. Dave, sorry, man. Joey Pepper. Joey Pepper was the best because, um, you know, he fucked with us from the very beginning. He, he wrote a bunch of emails and, and said that the show sucked, and it really bothered me, but I knew he was right. I knew that the show sucked. And I remember I would call Chris and I'd be like, man, this Joey Pepper's right. The show fucking sucks. And, uh, and Chris would always like just scrape it off and he would be like, whatever, man, don't worry about it. He's fucking with you. Who cares? You know, that was Chris's thing. When I would get neurotic, Chris would always text me, it's whatevs. And it made me crazy. And, um, you know, there's a lot to be taken from it's whatevs. But on the other hand, it's like, Jesus, it's whatevs got him killed. You know, it's whatevs made him not go to meetings. It's whatevs got him to whatever place he was in that he thought doing coke and heroin while he's, you know, quote unquote, in recovery, doing a recovery podcast, getting his side D so he can be a recovery uh, psychologist is what happened, you know. And I don't judge Chris, and I'm trying to find a way to uh, feel you know, more empathetic for his pain. But I'm just so mad that this happened and so sad that he's gone that it's a little bit confusing. So our special guest is going to call in in a second. And I, I, I asked uh, Dr. Drew if he would ca call in because Chris loved Dr. Drew. Chris loved it when Dr. Drew was on the show. We went to his apartment in Manhattan. Chris, like, got all dressed, dressed up in, like, a, a Brooks Brothers polo and khakis and got his hair cut and he was just so fucking excited to go up there and I was excited too but to watch Chris and Dr. Drew do their dueling uh psychobabble you know recovery talk it was pretty it was pretty intense and it was pretty impressive and you know Chris um I know after that Chris was always like you know you handle the Artie Lang type guests and if we ever get like Dr. Drew type guests or psychologists or I'll, I'll be good for those. You know, those are the, those are the interviews I'm going to pay attention to. And so we actually had another psychologist who was scheduled to come on the show and maybe I'll have him on the show. Uh, but Chris kept blowing me off for that one. It's so weird to, uh, do this show without him. Um, who knows how long it will go on or if it will go on. This is the only one I'm going to do where it's just me and you guys and uh, a couple of callers. But after that, um, we'll get back to having some people with me, so it'll be fun. I mean, I don't know if I'm entitled to have fun now that Chris just died. I'm sure I am, and I'm sure it'll get easier, but here we are. All right, until Dr. Drew calls, I'm just going to read some more uh, emails and messages. This one is from uh, a woman named Alyssa in Connecticut, and she got sober with Chris, and she... She was kind of part of Chris's little crew, and she dated uh, Colin, one of Chris's friends. 
And she wrote a nice, funny uh, note that I want to read. And she says, uh, hey, Dave, first off, fuck. I'm so sorry for the pain you must be feeling along with Chris's family and friends and Annie. I got sober in Canaan in 2011 and dated Colin until about 2014 when I relapsed and was found passed out in Dylan's bathtub after drinking vodka from a contact solution bottle. That's serious business. Uh, So I spent a lot of time with Chris before his horrifyingly fantastic relapse the year before. Colin, Ted, and Chris shared an apartment in Sheffield, Massachusetts, a unit that was filled with juxtapositions and ironies, both in the decor and the inhabitants, particularly Chris. There were faded mustard linoleum tiles peeling off the kitchen floor beneath walls adorned with Tom Brady, sorry, Tom Brady era Patriots gear. It was like a frat house in a funhouse mirror. Natty ice and Popov pints were replaced by polar seltzer cans and cold brew. Rolled up dollar bills and little plastic bags warped into half-empty antihistamine bottles and soggy ice cream cartons. This combination will make sense when I tell you Chris was big into a hobby called Benadryl and Jerry's, a.k.a. bookending a nice daytime depression nap with fish food and half-baked. Classic. I listened to the show, this is nicely written by the way, I listened to the show from this week and feel admiration and gratitude for how you approach an impossible task. I work at High Watch, a 12-step based rehab in Kent, Connecticut, where a lot of the staff are in recovery. I shared the episode with them because it's incredibly important content. To be able to dissect the last five weeks of dialogue and behavior is a unique byproduct of having a regular podcast. I have to believe that Chris would want his death to help as many people as possible, and last week's show is one avenue to do just that. It was the brutally and frustratingly honest chronicle of all the signs we subliminally ignore. Our perceptions are our realities, and our subconscious minds, especially as addicts, can be so desperate to live in a world of marshmallows and unicorns. Let's try that again. Our perceptions are our realities, and our subconscious minds, especially as addicts, can be so desperate to live in a world of marshmallows and unicorns. All right, I get that. But more importantly, I think it's in our primitive nature to treat emotional pain as an immediate threat to our survival. Meditation can bring us the awareness to step back, observe and check facts. But I've got got to believe that even Buddha had moments of, ah, fuck, should have listened to that little voice. I think the guys felt that way back in 2013, before Chris's relapse, the one that included him throwing up in the passenger seat of the Beckley House manager's Nissan Pathfinder in the parking lot of the Canaan Cesspool Mecca, the gas station, with the Duncan. All right, that's a big place in Canaan where all these, all these sober kids go and, and, uh, and get coffee in this Mecca gas station with the Dunkin' Donuts. That sober house manager was Josh Janik, who'd be dead from an overdose in Beckley before the end of that year. Before, and they told this story on the last episode, so this, just try to recreate that in your head. Before he wound up in that car, he was tripping on something, I think acid, at the Sheffield apartment in the presence of Colin, Ted, and Michelle. When I heard about Chris's death last week, I thought of this moment. Michelle described him as being normal, happy-go-lucky Chris in one moment. Then, without prompting, a switch flipped. His face... Uh, changed into what seemed like an attempt to mimic Jack Nicholson in The Shining when he bust through the door. 
He literally stuck his two index fingers off each side of his head and started growling at her, chasing her around and pretending to be the devil. We all kind of laughed at the time, but I now see that the as the personification of his addiction. Um, I now see that as the personification of his addiction. Another detail of that Sheffield apartment was a giant poster of a long dock on what looked like the Caribbean hanging in the living room, torn on the edges and held up by thumbtacks in my romanticized memory. What an image, though. Paradise, scantily hanging on to popcorn-textured plaster, ready to fall down the moment the oscillating fan blew a little too hard in that direction. I want to make sure I tell you about just a pure Chris moment, too. It was late 2011, and he was living in Don's sober house in Canaan. Yet because I had just moved into Tanya's sober house after spending the summer at rehab two of five, I remember being drawn to his incredibly dark, unsettling humor off the bat, the kind of lines that made the angry Bob and Johnny milkshakes of AA seethe with rage while calculating the perfectly passive-aggressive share and response, the type of bluntly honest jokes that would send the suburban gaggle of girls sobbing all the way back to the rehab van where they could vent about being triggered by the world, appalled that society wasn't altering their vocabulary to quell their neuroses. I had no identity at all at this point in my life. I just chameleonized myself into Blank's girlfriend. It didn't matter who was in the Blank, as long as I could play a role other than Alyssa. Chris asked me to hang out with him at Don's one afternoon, which I was so excited for, but I was also terrified and intimidated by his intelligence. I don't remember much of the date, other than wondering if his head was too big for his body. He did have a big head, but he had a big body too. But I'll never forget the last five minutes. We both had no idea what the fuck we were doing, but knew it was sort of expected and unspoken that we kiss goodnight. It was tense and awkward that we would have made middle school band geeks look like Zach Morris and Kelly Kapowski. Um, how Chris approached the kiss still makes me cringe and laugh. Hold on. It was tense and awkward that we would have made middle school band geeks look like Zach Morris and Kelly Kapowski. I'm not even sure I understand that. Wouldn't the middle school geeks be less cool than the Saved by the Bell people, but who knows. Um, how Chris approached the kiss still makes me cringe and laugh. True to form, he begins with a story, largely based on a complete lie. He goes, so I went to the doctor today, and it was really weird. He asked me a bunch of questions, and then he said, okay, Chris, I want you to close your eyes now. Chris then told me to go along with it and instructed me to shut my eyes as he continued playing the role of the creepy doctor. This is classic. He said, so I close my eyes and then I feel him putting his lips on mine. And then he kissed me. Yup. Nothing puts you in the mood to make out more than a fictional tale of a gay medical professional taking advantage of his adult drug addicted patient. I think it was a closed mouth kiss for the most part, but there may have been some teeth scraping. We both immediately knew there was no chemistry there and we, and we were just two newly sober friends doing something we thought we should be doing in our first year because it was exactly what we shouldn't be doing, which made it more appealing. I love looking back on this moment so much, though. Yes, he could have, uh, he could have such a jaded, pessimistic sense of humor that was most likely a product of that disconnect connect you spoke of in the episode, but you hit the nail right on the head. He was an innocent. 
goofy, vulnerable, and stumbling to navigate the emotional complexities of adulthood, like an eight-year-old with a briefcase full of data analysis and animal crackers. I haven't been close with Chris in a few years, but was always happy when I heard he was doing well. After I emailed the, the episode to my coworkers, a few responded with, I'm sorry for your loss. I hated that. I know it's something we say because it's uncomfortable, and we just let words fall out of our mouths to fill the silence. But I truly feel this is not my loss. It is yours, and it is the world's. This is the loss of those who hadn't had the chance to meet Chris yet. This is our loss. Thank you for everything you're doing. I continue to think of his loved ones and hold you in my heart. Toodles. And that was from Alyssa, uh, who is a rehab person in, uh, in Connecticut. And that was a beautiful email. And I think it really does capture Chris, his creepy, his awkward, his funny. And he was totally innocent. And, um, you know, maybe that's where the whatevs came from. He would be frustrated to deal with, like, complex situations. So he would just whatevs that shit, you know? That was the way he dealt with it. The truth is about fucking dopey is that um, I want it to be fun. If it's not fun, there's no point in doing it. You know, it makes me crazy to think of uh, to think that Chris died because it was supposed to be we were having fun in recovery. We were both terrible drug addicts, and now we're both sober and happy. But that wasn't the actual story. And um, you know, I just got back from the the funeral in the wake yesterday, I think. And um, it was incredibly painful and incredibly weird. I was a, a pallbearer. And, um, you know, even though we got all of these messages and everything, and we've got as many downloads as we have, I just never thought that anybody really gave a shit about Dopey. And um, hold on, we're having technical difficulties with Dr. Drew. Weird. But I just found myself thinking these, like, just terrible thoughts in these uncomfortable moments. Like, at the wake, there's a line to go up to his body. And um, and I'm standing in the line, and I see him in the distance, and he's just this, you know, he's just lying there. His face is covered with makeup. He looks old. He doesn't look like himself. And um, And the next thing you know, the person behind me goes, hey, are you Dave? And they just start talking to me about Dopey, and I'm you know, I'm trying to uh, to deal with my emotions. And it's just so weird because you have to be, like, cool and you have to be, like, what's up? And you have to, you know, you have to say something, like, profound. Uh-oh, here we go. Dr. Drew's calling in. Let's go. Hello? Hey, it's Drew. Hey, Drew, how are you? Dave? Yes, sir. Okay, great. We've had technical difficulties. How are you doing? I wonder why. I think I I had mistexted my number to uh, your wife, and then yeah. I didn't realize it. I put a two instead of a one, so I'm sorry for that. There you go. So I appreciate you calling in, and I know it would have meant everything to Chris. I, I know you heard uh, he overdosed last week and he died. Um, I know. It's just terrible. I, he was one of your patients. I'm sure you remember, and I'm sure you remember uh, our incredibly long conversation in your apartment, which. Uh, he was in, you know, he was in outer space uh, to have left there. He was just so excited, and and I know he dreamed of being like you, you know. Yeah. I know that was like his dream of of, of like being able to help people and affect people, 
And, uh, you know, and he, he always, I, like, please talk. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm confused by his demise. I, I got to tell you, I had such a good feeling about how he was doing. And, uh, you know, I, the miracles of cases like Chris that keep me going. And it, it makes me wonder what, what it doesn't all fit for me. I mean, I mean what, ha- what happened? Well, what exactly. happened? Yeah. What happened was, uh, and I only know what I know. You know what I mean? I don't really know what happened. I have like. Here's what I'm, I'm wondering: Is there any chance this was more of a suicide type thing? Because it, it just doesn't feel like a relapse to me. I mean, I'm sure it could have been. I mean, I've, I've been baffled by better, but it just doesn't make sense. I don't think it was a suicide, and I'm like, I was very embedded in his life. You know, I talked to him many times a day. And like, uh, and I was pretty like pretty close to his brain, even though I wasn't obviously on his, you know, in his mind. But like the re- yeah. the reason the relapse came, I think it came from he had replaced his twelve step work with schoolwork, and uh, and he got injured, and uh, and when he got injured, he was in Anguilla, and he inj- he he tore a ligament in the back of his leg. And, oh my God! And I have no like documentation of him getting a, a prescription for pain meds, but I think he probably got one. Or he was also like a manager at a sober house. I wouldn't be surprised if he confiscated like some Suboxone and then he took it because he was in pain. You know, something along those lines. Yes, I mean I, I'm going to blame my peers because that's how my patients die. That's how they die all the time. That's how. So that starts to make sense then. Right. I can't tell you how, how common that is, and I guarantee you, somebody went, "Man, you got to take this." What are you? What are you kidding? Just don't take it for a couple of days. No big deal. And they don't understand what that does. They don't get it. Well, but Chris did. But Chris understood what it would do. I, you know, that's yeah, the really. Not, not when you have a doctor say, when you have a doctor standing over you. Think of think of think of your disease. You hurt yourself. You're actually in pain. You do need pain control. And you have a doctor standing over going, what's the matter with you? I'm your doctor. I'm telling you what you need to do. I, it happens all the time. Right. I literally have doctors saying saying to my patients, when are you going to stop listening to those people that try to brainwash you? Take, take the medicine I'm, I'm giving you. And weeks later, they're dead. And, uh, Andrew, Adam Goldstein, DJ AM, that's exactly what happened to him. It, that was the story there. He was, he was prescribed something, and then it turned into a full-blown crack and heroin relapse, right? With AM, uh, he was he had panic, he had burns after a plane accident. Right. Appropriately put on the medicines, but then got strung out and uh, couldn't fly. Was having discomfort, and then was told that by a doctor. Two weeks later, dead of cocaine and alcohol. Right, that was a, that was an amazing. The documentary about him was just incredible. Yeah, and yeah. I, I remember. It, 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 I say I think of Chris in the same category is the kind of recovering person that I would, you know, I would send tough patients to and would, you know, really trust his recovery. But when the medical community gets their hands on you, it, it, it turns into dust. Right. It's, it's, uh, they don't understand it. They don't understand recovery. That's... And remember, a lot, of, a lot of what we were doing, you, me, and Chris, during that long podcast, was laughing at how my peers misinterpreted what was going on with him when he was sick. Right. Right. And now we have the same story without getting the benefit of being able to laugh because Chris didn't make yeah. it. Yeah, you know? that's right. And so, right. And so uh, you know, our podcast is not the biggest fucking podcast in the world. But uh, after Chris died, there's been this crazy outpouring 
of uh, you know sadness and concern and and grief. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I'm sure yeah. a lot of our audience is uh, addicted or has been addicted. And you know, with the, with the drugs being the way they are now, I think we're all going to be. I mean, I lost another one of my best friends six weeks ago to the same thing. And I feel like I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you talked to Bob, and Bob just keeps saying, just take to, to adopted the phrase, please don't die, just don't die, just stay alive today, just, just stop it, just don't die. It was weird. And it's, Bob actually called me up out of the blue uh, before Chris died. You know, on a Friday. Like I've never, you know, I've never really like chilled with Bob. I felt very honored, but he called me up with that message on Friday, and Chris was dead on wow. fucking Tuesday morning. Oh my god. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, crazy. I, I kind of wanted your input on like, like how we deal with the loss. You know what I mean? Like the the the, yeah. the like because I feel angry and I feel sad, and I you know I feel lonely and angry and sad, and and I know I just want to feel uh, empathy for him because obviously he was in a lot of pain. It's probably scared um, the shit out of him. No, no, it's not time for empathy. Empathy comes later. Now, now it's anger, disbelief, deal-making, all kinds of unpleasant feelings. Right, right. Grief. It, 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 deal, dealing with his feelings is, is missing your own. So it's okay to have your own conflicted feelings. Right. And, and you, listen, you've got gotta to turn to the community at times like this. More meetings, more process, more support. Right. That's true. I, and I, I don't think I've been doing it enough. I, I haven't been to a uh, meeting. I haven't been to a meeting since he died. I went, to his, I went to Boston for a funeral and a wake. I've been talking to a ton of addicts in recovery, but uh, I haven't been. I'll go to a meeting tomorrow, though. Tonight. Tonight? <laughs> I'll find something. I will find something. All right. All right. Find something tonight. And, and um, what? what He was, he's very, he was very serious with this woman who's a medical student at Harvard and they were moving on with the next phase of their life. He had just finished the master's portion of his school and, um, you know, it it was just mind blowing, but he was drifting. You know what I mean? He was totally drifting. Well, I mean, it's easy to say that now. I mean, he was busy with his program, with his, with his education, right? Yes. He had, he had been so successful in the recovering community, and, and now everybody's kind of saying maybe he left that place too soon. You know what I mean? Maybe he went back into the real world too quickly. Uh, do you find that to be the case? Uh, he was probably in the recovery community for like three years before he left. Well, three, five years, those, that's plenty of time, but, but what you have to do is not make the decision on your own. You have to make sure you with your sober peers, mental health team, whoever that is, and take input from them. If it's your decision alone, it's still your addict brain making the decision, and it could steer you wrong. Right. But if everyone around you goes, yeah, that's a good idea, it's okay, it's time, then it's time. So I, I don't know what happened in that process with him, but his well, recovery seemed pretty solid. I, I bet he didn't do a lot of stuff without checking in with people. No, not only did he have a crazy social network... He was under the care of a whole team, Drew. Yeah. You know, he was under yeah. the care of, of a whole team, and he, like, really slipped through the cracks. You know, and if you want to call it, like, uh, 
you know, it, what it smelled to me like was a, a case of like constitutionally incapable of being honest kind of thing. Because I mean, well, once you're, but, but, but once you're using, that's what happens. Right. You have once no he was chance. using, all all bets are off. Right. Everything comes back. It all comes back. What 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 is that team? What was that team? Is it possible they gave him something before no. he even got to the painkillers? No, no, definitely not. Because it was no, nobody it, gave. Him, now the usual story is somebody gives them some Adderall or something. No, there. It's all recovery uh, sobriety group like all right. like all okay. you know doctors and uh psychologists and okay. you know and like he all was right. being tested every week or every two weeks right. he was drug tested he was fucking breathalyzed twice a day for five yeah. years true and, and but i felt like you know i was on the phone with him the night before he died and i i i was like you know he had told me he was being tested the whole time but i never really thought about it and I was like, isn't it kind of like being enabled to be tested five years in? Like, you don't have to rely on your own recovery, that you have to rely on these people testing you, you know? And um, Yeah, it, it's a, that's a very challenging question. I, I can't say, you know, with, with certainty that that's a problem. But I always do worry when people have coaches or things that, that prevent them from becoming autonomous. I worry about that. But, but I, I certainly am in favor of random testing. I would test everybody randomly if I could. So I, I don't have any problem with it. I, the, the structure testing, I don't know. Obviously, it didn't work out. No. And he, and he went to great lengths to dupe the tests. You know, yeah. like after the fact, they found all sorts of drugs in his car. They found, uh, you know, drug testing gear so he would know exactly what he was testing. You know, he was really sharp with this shit. And he loved he loved that aspect of it, you know. Chris yeah. knew every molecule and every substance, and he knew every you know four syllable word, and he just lived for that shit. And um, yeah. and he also loved to get away with stuff, you know, um, as we all do, yeah. you know, as we all do. You know, I feel bad because our show, the premise of our show, was having fun in recovery. That like what it's like, how absurd it is that we're recovered. And, and we were so high and like, and it, as it turns out, you know, that wasn't the case and I feel guilty. Well, how long was he out for? I, I don't know. I mean, my, my best guess is between four and six weeks. Yeah, that's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. But then that so, makes me think that maybe he was out longer because, because what the fuck do I know? Well, that's why I was wondering about his medical team because I can't tell you how how frequently it's the case that somebody gets their hands on Adderall or a sleeping med, and then magically they have an injury three months later, and then magically they get the opiate, and then off it goes. Right. So, so it makes me wonder I, 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 if there was something else exposed before, but maybe not. Maybe not. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty confident that the team would never give him anything, but I know that he might have set something like that up where he yeah. got something, and then he faked an injury. Because, over, you know, we've been doing it's this pod... Strangely, strangely, it's not faking an injury. Magically, they find their way to an injury. <laughs> they find, wow. They find, you know, in your disease. But what did you say about the pod? No, that's fascinating thought. You know, like, they ma- yeah. like he could have manufactured it, you know, yeah. because but he needed not, it. Yeah, I, 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 it's not even... I, I don't know how it happens, but it always happens when somebody's using magically there's always an injury and then off they go and, and it's usually because of recklessness 
you know, and, and the recklessness is part of, you know, the, the disease coming back. Right. When I, when I talked to my sponsor about it, he was like, you know, he, he told me that I saw all the signs and I did, you know, I even had the conversation with him. I was like, dude, you're not acting like yourself. You know, like, would uh-huh. you, I said, would you tell me if you were using? And he said, yeah. You know, and I just was like, he, he, you know, he was finishing up his finals. He was a fucking sober companion flying back and forth to Texas. He was f- driving from Boston to Great Barrington to take care of a sober house. I believed his too exhaustion. Much. Yeah, he was much, fucking spread super thin. Super thin. Yeah, too much, too much. Way too much. Yeah, you know, and it's totally unfortunate because he was very special. Well, but so, so the workaholism... You know, I, I'm, I'm sure he stopped listening to a sponsor around that. So that may, maybe that's where he started pushing away right there. Right. It's possible. When, when, yeah. when we went, after we left the, your apartment, did you remember who he was? Oh, of course. Oh, I mean, as a patient back yeah. in the day? Yeah. No, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, because uh-uh. he's so different. I mean, it, that, that's all, all I know is that I've, I have patients that I, you know, do remember and then see years later like him who impressed the hell out of me. So I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I get, I know the type of patient he was. I have no doubt uh, it was, you know, difficult. You know, it was, it's like we, uh, you remember how we were trying to get Artie Lang on the show when we saw you? Yeah, you did. Yeah, we wound up getting him on the show and Chris was like kind of balking at coming to Manhattan to do the show with Artie. And Chris was being very uh, difficult. I could, I, he was just, something was up with him. And I, I thought he was just, like, losing interest in doing our show. You know, that's what, what I thought. What, how long ago was that? How long ago was that? That was, like, a month ago. Maybe five okay. weeks ago. And, and I, or, yeah. you know, around there. And I just thought he'd lost interest in doing the show. And I was like, you know what? I was starting to try to figure out how to do it myself. And I was like, fuck it. I'll go interview Artie myself. Because I was, like, the obsessed, you know, Artie Lang fan. And Chris was like, no, I'm going to come, but I won't drive. And his girlfriend was was convinced that he wouldn't drive because he wanted to get high for the trip. Um, And Chris claimed it was his injury. But he showed up looking like shit. He was all gray. He was all agitated. And it was just so fucking clear, and I didn't see it. Well, please don't blame yourself. I've I've been misled by plenty. I don't. Yeah. It, it, it's a cunning thing, and if, if you're not, you know, and, and it, it, the closer you are to the person, frankly, the easier it is for them to manipulate, as you well know. So. Right. And he, he would, and, and to, you know, and to expect him to be honest is unrealistic. Right. You know, I was very much walking on eggshells. I was like his mother or something. You know what I mean? I was like... I, during that month. Yeah. During that month. Yeah. Yeah. Because I also wanted well, our... Sh- please. Yeah. Well, that's that's a sign, you know. That the, and, and, you, and you were not... It's not as though you weren't uh, keyed into it. You asked them. I asked them a million you know, times. A million yeah, times. Yeah, you can only do so much. You can only do so much. Totally. Terrible. I totally appreciate you uh, calling in. What are you up to? Same old, same old. But I, I got to tell you that Bob and I were, were, we were affected by this. It's not, not, he sent me the test, text the morning he found out. It was just like, what, what a horrible summer this is going to be. 
when uh, you know patients are dying all over the place of a, of a treatable illness. It's really, really disturbing. Well, what do you? What's the next thing you say after that? You know what I mean? People are dying he, all he over. And I, yeah. Well, we got it, it, Bob and I see the problem as the educating the medical and mental health community because they, they they literally have never seen recovery. Many of them, they don't understand what it is. And so for them to prescribe a benzodiazepine or an Adderall or an opiate to somebody like Chris, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. It's just going to be for a few days. Relax. Follow my instructions. No understanding of the implications. Well, if the AMA classifies addiction as a disease, how are they not educated? The AMA, get that out of your head. The AMA is a lobby group that doesn't do anything anymore. <laughs> the... the, the you know, the, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and uh, Statistical Manual for Psychiatric Illness, yes, it's an illness, it's a disease, it's a diagnosis. Uh, and the people want it, people just don't treat it. They don't, they know how to identify it, they know how to detox, but they use harm avoidance strategies, they use all these other medical interventions that are not recovery, and so they really don't understand a recovering patient. They never see it. I talked to Bob and I talked to a doctor, really fine doctor, who treats AIDS patients, AIDS patients with opiate addiction, and all she could talk about was Suboxone. I said, "Well, how about a patient that was, you know, sort of a, a reasonable candidate for recovery for abstinence? Abstinence that doesn't exist." That's I what go, they said. You, you, I go, "You mean to tell me you've never seen, you've never withdrawn a patient from opiates, and you've never seen an opiate-free drug addict? Never, impossible. That I've never seen that in my entire career." And I thought, "Wow." That's where we are, where doctors that treat addicts have never seen recovery. Wow. So naturally, when recovery walks in the door, you don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to manage it. So, so Bob and I understand it. We, we are, are interested in it. We, were, are, you know, we are dedicated to helping people fully thrive, and that's recovery. It's not for everybody, but as you see, for somebody like Chris, it, it, his life depended on it. And you know, he, anybody takes, when anybody takes a half measure, he goes all the way back in. Right, exactly. But so what do you do, like if you and, and Bob are on this mission to educate the medical community, like what will it take? I don't know. You know, we used to have medical students and we used to do a lot. Of, I used to lecture at the medical schools and it's, I, I don't know. They're not, they're, I, I don't know. Well, here's what it's going to take. There's a guy named John Kelly and a guy named Keith Humphreys. Uh, John Kelly is head of addiction at Harvard, and Keith Humphreys is a major uh, faculty in the psychiatric department at Stanford. And they are publishing, and they are speaking, and they are talking about recovery, and it's it's having an impact. So it's there. There are people in important positions carrying the word, and so Bob and I are just doing what we can around the fringes. Right, right. And how long do you think it would take for for you know, the medical community to change its opinion? Like, how long would it take? Well, 50 we years? Finally, finally, maybe 20. We finally got them to wake up to what they were doing with pain and opiates, right? You saw that. Uh, we've been fighting that since the mid-90s. Right. So that took, tw that took 20 years. So finally that battleship is turning around. The next one is to try to convince them that there are free services everywhere that have as high a probability of success as professionally managed treatments. Just as high or better in some studies, and it's free. Yeah. Talk about saving health talk about saving healthcare expense, for God's sakes, get behind it. So once once they get behind it fully and 
they, there's some Cochrane analyses, meta-analyses going to come out. There'll be some press around it soon, and hopefully a wind will a wind will blow, and the direction will change a bit. And when when you have, I mean, that sounds good to me. Uh, but does does the fact that it's free scare the medical community because they can't profit on it? It, it? It's not even a profit motive. It's fee, it's fearful of it not being professionally managed, which which is understandable. I mean, because they can't monitor it, and it feels like people can get taken advantage of. And and you know as well as I, there are meetings and there are meetings. Not <laughs> so good. And, uh, and so there's no way for us to con- you know, do quality control and outcome measurements and stuff. So it makes us nervous. But the reality is it's been around a long time. It works damn well, and it's helped millions of people, and it will continue to do so. Right. And it's free. And you've been, free. You've been treating addicts for – how long have you been treating addicts? 19 – really actively since 1990. All right. So I, I can't do math very well. What is that, 20, almost 22 years or something? Where we, no, 26 oh. years, 28 years, 38 years? How long is yeah. that? 38 years. Uh, yeah. A long time, we'll say. Forgive yeah. me. Um, what, what is the thing, the light that goes off in an addict's head where they can grasp recovery? Like, a, as a professional, how do you quantify it? Well, that's, if I could, I think I'd win a Nobel Prize. Right. I, a, a patient characterized it for me perfectly one day when I was giving a lecture. And she was a patient that had been in multiple times, been resistant and been difficult. And then all of a sudden she came in and she was in the game. She was following directions. She was doing her work. And during the lecture, she raised her hand and she goes, you know, I, was very, I wasn't into this. I was resistant. I didn't think I needed it. And now I get it. How do you give somebody get it? And I thought, wow, that is the, that is the question. Right. That's the magical question that one day when we figure that part out, There'll be no stopping recovery. But getting somebody to the point where they're willing to do the work, that ain't easy. That right. ain't easy. And, and as you and I both know, it often takes multiple treatments before people get it. And that's okay for now, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Well, Chris, Chris, had, Chris had 15 treatments. He, was, uh, he had finished his master's program towards this ID. We had the greatest podcast in the history of addiction and recovery. No offense to you guys. Um, he had, he had everything, you know, right there. And, um, and still that fucking demon, that, that ghost, that monster claimed him and enslaved him. And it's like, it's like science fucking fiction. I I was in in Boston with, with all, every one of his friends is in recovery. True. Everyone, you know, it it was like, it was insanity. It was insanity, yeah. and uh, and I, it's like a sick joke. Everyone thought Chris was just going to show up because this was so unlikely. You know what I'm saying? It's just like it's crazy. Oh, yeah, I, listen, I, I I get it, but I, I what I what I always hope when something like this happens is that it will not have been in vain in the sense that, and I would know he would want this that it reminds the rest of you how cunning and baffling, and you double down on your own commitments and stay sober. Right. On on his on his behalf. Right. Not not for him, but but as a reminder from him. That that's what and, my, what my sponsor said. He said, you know, in AA or in twelve step, we're always told to carry the message, and this is really Chris ultimately carrying the message. You know, like, oh yeah. You know, and yeah. that's deep. He's, he's, he's sending the message. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> it, it's and it's it's and he will not. And I'm sorry to tell you, he's not going to be the last friend that you put in the ground. Right. With this disease. 
Right. It is a treacherous, it is a difficult time to be a drug addict. Legal marijuana, everyone's drinking, pills are being pushed by my profession. It is a treacherous time to be an addict. Fucking it fentanyl, really you know. Yeah, you know, fucking it's, fentanyl, fucking, fucking Adderall. It's, you know, you heard me mention that now several times. That's usually what starts my patients on their slide. What's the Adderall and thing? You know, I, you know, in my whole life, I don't think I've ever done Adderall. And I'm a heroin addict. Well, stop thinking about it. No, I'm not. I'm it's, not. Uh, I'm not thinking about Adderall. If somebody in recovery goes, "Oh God, I'm," here's what happens. It happens all the time. Is he's doing his schoolwork and he can't quite concentrate. Addicts have ADD and ADHD, so he'll go, "God damn it, I can't quite concentrate when I'm studying." I have ADD. I've read about it. I'm studying it. I have ADD. I'm going to go see a doctor. Doctor, I have all the criteria for ADD. Yes, you do, Chris. Here's some Adderall. It will help you study. And it will help him study. Right. And it will make him perform better, and it will take him out. Right. I'm still I'm still really worried something like that happened to him, because it happens so much to people in trains, in, in scholastic, you know, in, in academic environments. You know, especially, you know, with your addiction and you know too much, you're studying ADD, and you go, well, fuck, I got ADD. I can get some help with that. Adderall's not addictive. Come on. I feel like Chris, go. I think Chris had been prescribed Adderall since he was, from when he was 12 till when he was 20. You know what I mean? I think he, he, like, I don't think that was the thing for him. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, with the injury, he got, like, some Percocet or something. Or, you know, what about this, Drew? Here's another question, then I'll let you go. You know, in in the recovery community, you know, obviously treatments hire addicts who are in recovery to help treat addicts in recovery. Yeah. You know, now, these addicts, uh, the, the ones who are working for the treatment center with a little bit of time, are confiscating drugs are around, you know, very dangerous yeah. using addicts. They are, yes. you know, testing for drugs. I, 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 so here's how, yes, I, I know what you're asking. So my my physician colleague, a guy that I worked alongside with for over a decade, was a recovery guy. And I was around when he was using. I was around when he got his recovery. And he was a couple of years into recovery, maybe three years into recovery, and I just knew he'd make a great treatment professional. I was like, dude, come come join us. Come stay with us. Come help me with this program. And he was like, I would love to. Let me check with my team. So he would check in with his, the physician treating him, the therapist treating him, his sponsor, and they all said, you're not ready yet. Not quite. We're not there. At about five and a half years, I checked again. And he checked back in. Still at five and a half years, he checked with his peers. And they went, yep, I think you could do it. But he had to double down on therapy connection, double down on Al-Anon. You have to do maintenance in order to work around addicts. It, it will deplete you if you're an addict yourself. This business of people, you know, six months into sobriety working in a sober living, that is no bueno. That dangerous. Is no good. Very dangerous. Oh, it guarantees trouble. You, guarantees. Need, you need the net of this, the mesh of the net to be so fine that it makes sure yeah. that you are sharp. Or else it's just so... And, 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 and you know, you can't be a lone ranger. you got to be part of a team. Right. You got, you need, that's a really important part of this. So, you know, addiction is a team treated by, with, with teams. And uh, I could never do it alone. I always have, you know, a bunch of people with me. And, that, and that's, you know, you need it. You're fighting, you're fighting a very powerful foe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really, really, really appreciate you uh, calling in. If it's the worst circumstances in the world... And, uh, no, it's horrible. And it's, it's truly horrible. It's truly horrible, and it's truly heartbreaking. And it's it's sort of disgusting to me. It's disgusting that somebody like Chris has to be taken from himself and from us. Yeah. 
but here we but here we are. And how am I going to do Dopey without him? What what the fuck am I going to do? Well, don't stop. <laughs> I mean, it's an important podcast. Take, try some. Uh, there's lots of recovering people out there. Try some. Try some others. But try Chris was the perfect Here. one. He was the one. I I know. I know. All right. And he and he had a story that very few have. That, I know. Uh, that survived to the extent that he did. I know. I know. But um, but you you it's important work, so don't stop it. Right on. I appreciate it, Drew. Right. Do me a favor when right. you're when you're in New York, you give me a call and I'll get you a pastrami sandwich, okay? Done and done. Cool, man. Thank you so much for calling. All right, Dave. Take care. Take All care. Right, you got it, man. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. So that was fucking awesome. Dr. Drew, man, coming to the rescue. I'm wondering what you guys thought about that thing. Let's uh, let's check on guest number two. You know, I mean, I don't think that Chris's team... Gave, I, I know for a fact that Chris's team didn't give him drugs. Uh, I don't know that Chris didn't try to get something when he was... Um, when he was, uh, after he'd gotten injured. I don't know that he didn't try to get Percocet or just get Percocet after he got injured. And I don't know that he didn't get drugs uh, while he was working uh, in the house, you know? I don't know what happened. But I do, I'm fairly certain that he didn't go from nothing to everything in one step. That's, I'm pretty sure about that. Hold on. All right, here he is, the great Bob Forrest. What's going on? Well, here I, I don't know how great, but... I'm so glad to be talking to you, man. Such yeah. a ridiculous thing that's happened. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's fucking. It, we just had we just had your the other half of your uh, team. Drew was on. Yeah, Drew was on, and uh, and he was certain that that somebody probably slipped him some Adderall or something, but I don't think that was what happened. You know. Well, well, the manicness. I mean, we for some reason once when, when stuff like this happens. We all want meaning, and we want to know why. And I just have had so many people kill themselves and die. I don't even care. They're dead, and it's so sad. Who right. cares? Exactly. Why? That's how I feel about it, too. It's like so many people, I think they're scrambling around grieving, and they want to try to put a puzzle together well, so they don't the think. The idea that Drew and I kind of go back and forth with is it would help somebody else. No, it's out of control now. It's a leading cause of death of white males in their 50s. Suicide. Drugs. It's called despair death. That's deep. They had to, the, the CDC had to put it... They About three years ago, they came up with a new category called despair death. And that means addiction, alcoholism, suicide for white males. And that's the number one killer of white men in their 50s. Despair death. Despair death. It could be a, like a, a hardcore band or... Or yeah, dark I'm metal band. Yeah, it could be something. It could totally be something. It's it's just like it's such a shame. And uh, and Chris loved you. Chris would always oh, talk about he would always talk about being in treatment with you, and he would try to be explaining to you why he was different, or like why he could get away with this or his story. And he would always say that that Bob would just yeah, sit we back. Had a lot of doctors agreeing with him. That's what my new thing, dude, is doctors will kill addicts. Mm. Doctors kill addicts. Right. That's Everybody what... who's sober needs to hear me loud and clear. Doctors will kill you. 
And what's this? I mean, Drew was just talking a little bit about this, and we were talking about the solution to it. The solution is don't go to doctors. Like, what do? You- well, no. I mean, if you got cancer and I've got liver problems, of course I went to the doctor then. But but for anxiety, depression, um, attention deficit disorder, whatever the fuck that is. If you're 50 years old, what do you need to pay so much attention to? Exactly. You know <laughs> That's I mean? a good point. <laughs> so all the all the psychobabble diagnoses that Big Pharma has assisted, the psychiatric community has assisted Big Pharma in profiting trillions of dollars off the American public by getting them to believe they're chronically mentally ill instead of just spoiled brats or instead of not using natural, organic, thousand-year history, tried-and-true methods of coping with mortality, existential angst what is the meaning of life so what's what's an, wait hold on hold on hold on what's an organic tried and true remedy for this for the human religion, condition religion okay. is one thing philosophy right um exercise exercise work and and like just spiritual practice so right. i'm sitting in laguna right now all right and i come here a couple, you know, once a week or a couple times, a few times a month. And there's just something, and this is historic in AA, if you know your AA history. So Chuck C., the famous AA member who wrote New Pair of Glasses, lived here in Laguna. And in that book, he talks about sitting in his chair and, and meditating and looking out at the ocean and how it centers him and how it makes him feel both significant and insignificant and that it puts the whole world into proper perspective, the ocean. So for the last three years, that's what I've been doing. I'm sitting in my chair. That's an imitate, a pale punk rock imitation. (laughs) And I'm looking at the Laguna Harbor and the waves crashing in. And I can see Betty Davis's house from the 1940s at the end of the beach. And, and I just try to, like, you can't get all caught up in car insurance and tuitions and 401ks and all the bullshit of American capitalism and feeling less than or better better than or less than based on your bank account and feeling like nobody cares about you. And turn that around and, and say, who do I care about? Who am I being of service to? Who am I trying to cheer up? Who am I there for so they don't fucking kill themselves? Right. You know what I mean? We've got this selfish, entitled sickness and illness. And it's not just the addict population in America. It's everybody. Mm. You know, and I think that there are tried and true methods. And I don't I'm not I don't subscribe to any religion, but I have a lot of religious friends that are of that of the same generation of Chris and me and Drew. And though Drew's older, he's going to be 60. They're coming up here. No way. Soon. Yeah. He looks great. <laughs> So I'm always three years behind him. So I feel. Well, like Chris a was a fucking. Brother. Chris was a spring chicken, man. Chris was 33 years old. Chris was I like. Know, but he's, I've known him for 15 years. I know. And so he, how old was he when he was in Los Angeles? 20. Exactly. You know. You know what I mean? I mean, his so parents some looking. Souls are older. Look, he, he never seemed like a millennial to me. No, he was very like a man out of time, big time. Yes, he, he was. He was. And there's lots of people like that. There's people that just gravitate towards a certain kind of lifestyle and philosophy of living that doesn't fit their generation. Right. I mean, and every millennial should do that because they're a lost generation. 
Right. That's for sure. But I, you know what? They're due for something like that because they are so lost. You know what I'm saying? They're due for something significant because how long can insignificance reign? You know what I'm saying? They're due for some depth. But it's not the millennials' fault. No. It's the, it's the late baby boomers like myself and the, and the beginning of the Gen X generation who raised them and didn't tell them life is suffering. Life has suffering in it. Your grandparents die. Yeah. You know what I mean? That that somehow I was a late baby boomer. I was born in 61. It was life was just smacked you in the face and your parents didn't protect you from it. Right. When, you know, there's, you know, and everybody criticized my strong stance about we've done something terribly wrong to raise a whole generation of kids who don't know that the world doesn't care about them, that they need to care about themselves and they need to assert themselves. And that's how you get respect, not for just being born. Well, that's how I try to raise my kid. You know, that's totally what I try to do. I, I, I'm tough with her with that kind of thing because it's like a joke. Everybody thinks that everybody is going to be wiping their ass and cutting up their meat and all this shit. And it's like you need to know how to do it because one day you're going to be by yourself. You know what I mean? And you better yes. have some ability to be confident in who you are. You know, I mean, maybe that can be the turnaround in society. Like, well, I notice it with Elvis, and we were talking about it today. Yeah. So, so at a certain age, like you're, you have a daughter that's eight. I have a daughter that's eight, and I have a daughter yeah. that's nine so weeks. Elvis is gonna be eight in two months, right? Okay. So this is a time where you start to give them choices, right? And I remember what my choices were when I came home from school. I had a stay-at-home mom, and she would all, you know, the rule was you can you can go outside and play as soon as you're done with your homework. Right now, she wasn't telling me I had to do my homework. All she was saying was the boundary. You are going to get your homework done before dinner. So so you can choose, Bobby. It's up to you. You either choose to get right in the dining room and do your homework. Did they call you Bobby? They called you Bobby? Bobby. Nice. (laughs) I love that. So if you had 30, 35 minutes, 45 minutes, and let's face it, I lied about my homework. I would take the two easiest things, do them real fast, Uh show them to her, and then I knew I had maybe something else to do later. But I had the choice. I could not do my homework and go in the living room and lay on the floor and watch TV, and then my dad would come home, then we'd have dinner, and then I'd have a miserable night from 6.30 until 8 when I had to go to sleep because I'd have to be doing homework and take a bath and get in bed. But I wanted to go outside and play with Jimmy Freeman and the West kids and all the kids that lived in my neighborhood. Right. So I did my homework. That The choice was left up to me, though. I notice nowadays, and I do, I'm guilty of it myself, we tell children they have choices and then we tell them the choices are a good decision and a bad decision. Right. Right? We're micromanaging and, and, and really just emasculating is that the word we were not letting them really have a choice we're taking away their ability to make decisions and also it's like these it's like it's almost like back when we were kids games you could do what you wanted in the game with these new games you can only do like one of three things you know what i'm saying freedom is is very much taken out of the equation in, in a lot of ways yeah. yeah, I don't think 7, 8, 10, 12-year-olds know how to make decisions the way that my friends and I made at 7, 8, 10, 12, which is, you know, like we, and, and 
this idea that all children are Lord of the Flies is bullshit too. Because I remember there was less athletic kids that were cool kids, right? Not saying that there wasn't bullying and, and it wasn't terribly unfair for some kids when I was growing up and I idealized that it, it wasn't. But there were some kids that weren't very athletic that were still cool right. in our kind of world. And, you know, we used to play this thing called kickball where you rolled the ball to somebody and they had to kick it, right? So now players that were good at it, they only got one strike. And if they hit it outside the baseball field type thing, then they're out. And if somebody caught it on a fly, they're out. And if somebody could catch it on a bounce and throw it to first base, they're out. We used to play basically baseball with a kickball. Dude, they play kickball everywhere. I, play, I grew up in New York okay, City. Well, I played they, kickball. I give, me, give me a break. in Los Angeles do they play this game. In Manhattan, <laughs> we played kickball. But I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, so so the, the let's call them nerdier kids or kids that weren't good at sports. We would let them have three tries. Like they could kick it out of bounds once, twice, and three. We decided the eight or ten or twelve of us, eight or ten or twelve year olds. Well, that there was... is nowhere in Los Angeles that's happening where children are determining rules and playing a game, and they all agree to it and they do it. Kids run to their mommies and daddies and want to know what the rules are, and then the mommies and daddies referee and and kind of intervene. And I think that's what causes what's what's now psychiatrically being called learned helplessness. Wow. Well, B- Bob, tell me tell me the story you just told me on the phone the other day about Elvis at the amusement park. Well, which one? Which I forget. We you you, you said you said Elvis come home from the amusement park and he he didn't want to go on the roller coaster and he oh, said. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he yeah and it's it's still a big to do so he he's a little timid when it comes to roller coasters right but yeah. he used to be timid when it came to the ocean and now he even scared me swimming out too far past the buoys and stuff a couple of weeks ago so so he didn't go on the roller coaster that all his friends went on at the camp and they all called him a chicken. And I said, well, you're kind of on a certain level, you are a chicken. He goes, I can't believe my own father is calling me a chicken. And mm-hmm. I go, well, but you used to be chicken of the ocean, and now you're not. Now you're, And he, you saw him connect the dots. Like if I just said, oh, you're not a chicken, you just don't like roller coasters, Elvis. That's what most parents yes. do these days. Yes, yes. And I said, no, yeah, you've you got to understand. You've called people chicken for not doing things that you're not scared of. And then um, – he got it. He got it that he was scared of the ocean, and now he's not scared of the ocean a, a summer later, and that he's maybe scared of roller coasters still, but someday he won't be. That's empowering to a child. But what happens, Bob, when you, like, because I was recently at a fucking water park, and there was this ridiculously steep thing, and they convinced... There are things I'm scared of at these fucking things. No, I was scared <laughs> as hell to go on it, but I went on it because, like, I don't know, I was an idiot. And then I was, like, sick for a week, and I, and now I know I don't like these things. I'm scared of them, and I don't like them. Isn't that, isn't that okay? Chicken, chicken. All right, well, that's fair. That's fair. Now, but, now, how do we bring this back to our friend Chris? You know what I mean? Like, well, I just I think that Chris, you know, ever since I've known him, he knows to gravitate towards people like you and me. But there's another pull pulling him to that kind of entitlement and doctor, I'm special, different. That was the war within Chris, and I watched it 
you know, some people I've been reading your Twitter thing and all that kind of stuff, and people sense that that there was something in his voice. Last time I talked to him two months ago, I didn't sense anything in his voice, right? Yeah, I I don't think I think I, when you talked I to him didn't. last, he was fucking cool. You know what I mean? He had it together. That was like two months ago. Yeah, yeah. Was it more than that? Three months ago? I think it was. I think that last time you called him was was a while ago. But I don't think that, I think that Chris had it together until I, in my estimation, like six weeks ago. You know, he had some kind of physical fucking injury, and um, and then he he changed. You know what I mean? But 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 yeah. but Drew is talking about how he's had a million cases where where somebody's in relapse already, and then miraculously they get injured because it needs to happen that they have a way to, to score. That they have well, a way it to... always will. Drew tends to see conspiracies of addiction, but I just know I've had friends that that haven't gone to meetings for years and they're fine, and then they right. get a snowboarding accident and then they're not fine. Right. So, but but what I have enough sober experience to see i know people that go to a meeting every day and talk about aa every second you talk with them right and they get in a snowboarding accident and they end up relapsing right so So i'm not really black and white and cut and dry about this what one thing that i i always have cherished since my early trying to get sober even before i got sober was i had relapsed and Gloria Scott, that legendary counselor in Los Angeles, um, she didn't ask me why. Everyone else asked me why. Like Anthony asked me why. All my friends in AA asked me why. And then some asshole told me why. You know what I mean? So you're always, when you've been sober for five months and you relapse, you're always, the first thing that comes to mind is why. And Gloria didn't ask me why. Right. And I, and it had been like, I had like, I don't know, 20, three days or something and we were eating after a meeting and I said and it came something came up like that and I said how come you never asked me why I relapsed and she goes I don't I don't care why you realize you know it's all just an argument <laughs> I love that and and I said but you must have an opinion she goes I have an opinion but I you know it doesn't really matter as long as you're back on track and that's why I always I'm kind of I just model after her. It doesn't matter why you relapse or how bad or what the fuck. Just get let's go to a meeting or let's get you into detox or let's go. Right. What does it matter? But the he, past is over with. The it, past is gone. But for us and, for us Chris is over with. You know what I mean? So it yeah. do, it doesn't matter how it happened. You know what I mean? Like I agree with well, you. But here's here's another thing that all I think that nobody thinks about. We're all gonna be over with. True. It's a matter of what you do. With the day that you've got. That's how I try to live. I don't know that I don't have liver cancer. The fuck? You know what I mean? But, but today I don't know that I, it doesn't seem like I do. And I don't. Hmm. I feel fine. So let's carry on. The psychiatric illness and depression and drug addiction and cravings and all that kind of stuff. We all know those things are, are, are overcomable. Because even the individual who dies from drugs has overcome it for periods of time. So you have to have faith, not in a religious sense, but just in a commonsensical faith. Right, right. And, you know, and I know that that some days are really awful. And I think about killing myself, and I talked about that in a podcast after, after Anthony Bourdain killed himself. And everybody's asking, why, why, why? And I'd have just onslaught of suicidal death. You know, two of my clients killed themselves, and I'm just like, holy fuck. 
who cares why? Right, they're just gone. And you they're have dead. you have clients die all the time, right? Well, I kind of I, I don't really case manage people anymore. So, but I have you know it's a, the you know Aloe has you know what like fifty in fifty out every month. So I meet fifty new addicts every month or forty new addicts every month, and and it's just jaw dropping how many people die right within a year within seven months and that's what got me onto the don't die thing like listen i don't i don't know that everybody's got to go to aa or gonna stop doing drugs completely it's a different generation it's a different society you know one thing that i brought up tuesday in my lecture because another kid um girlfriend of a boy that's in treatment had OD'd and died and we were talking about this stuff and I said you know maybe it's time for a revolution because you know I'm looking at a group of like 35 addicts probably five of them embrace a 12 step uh, kind of philosophy and and in the old days you would just say okay well then 30 of them need to use again until they become part of the five they're not becoming part of the five right and i started thinking about aa in general it was written in 1935 right 1935 and we're a different society i think anybody would say sure. from 1935 right and everyone about 1935 women had only had the right to vote for 13 years right Think about that. No, my, women were property in 1935. You know, and and, go, and Jim Crow laws were in 1935. I mean, this i this idealization of Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and the original AA. I mean, America wasn't all the greatest place in the world in 1935 for large parts of the society. Well, God, yeah, like, God-fearing was actually yeah. God-fearing then. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? It was like major league different. And, and you're right. It was a cr- society was not was not so loving to everybody. It was, you know, it was very, very, very tough. It was segregated and it was racist. And and you know, that's why when young people say it's a racist society, I say, well, yeah, it is a terribly, horribly racist society. A part of it is very racist, and but nothing like what what was even when i was growing up i was born before the civil rights act right right you know what i mean yeah so so you know try to know history a little bit and what's fascinating to me is if it does work for the five that the the alcoholics anonymous itself itself says great fantastic but if it doesn't work for you 30 god bless you and try to find something that does and you know, they, there's nothing else. Nobody offers anything else. So what's and the I revolution? Think, I think the revolution is millennials starting to figure out, like, their digital brains and how to communicate and how to, how to have a revolution of, of thought and, and action and sobriety and caring and compassion that I don't think you're going to find in a stuffy old room based on a thing written in 1935. I just don't think you're going to find it. I think AA is going to die within 25, 30 years. Well, if it doesn't, if the success rate doesn't go up, it certainly will. You know, if well, people aren't I, getting I've better. I've been going to a lot of meetings lately. You know, I, I go to a lot of meetings and I don't go that much. And, and I've been going to a lot of public 
you know, big speaker meetings around Southern California. There's very few young people in it. Well, Bob, why do you go? I get asked to speak or a friend of mine just got sober about four months ago and he asked me to go. I just try to be of service. I'm not, uh, you know, Bill Wilson was very critical of AA through the grapevine. I mean, I'm not the only one that cares and is a member of AA that would like it to improve. Well, no, I don't think you're wrong. You know what I mean? I, I, I find that meetings don't reflect, you know, I have a big book study that I'm in and I don't find that the meetings reflect what's in the book, you know, at all. But I, I am interested like how you make it, you know, I'm, you know, cause that's something Chris talked about all the time about not having to do AA and just do something you know what I mean? But, but for so him... The one thing that Chris did that I kind of argued with him back in the day, remember in Los Encinas, was I've always thought, with or without AA, I'm not using, no matter what. Right, right. That got through my head over the nine years of me trying to get sober and the suffering. Right. It really is... I, like, you know, and a lot of stuff has come up about Chris Cornell was on all these different meds and... And, and was he sober? And, you know, I'm sure the debate's going on in back east about what is sober. Is Waxone sober or Benzo sober if you take them as prescribed and all this kind of stuff? I can tell you that I have had no mind-altering substance in my system for 22 and a half years, 22 years and five months. Right. I haven't, I've had oral surgery without medication, right? Yeah. Just Novocaine. I have had, you know... I fractured my wrist. I said nothing. I don't want anything. Nothing. Because I don't trust doctors, and more importantly, I don't trust myself. So if you had a bad cold, you would never take NyQuil? Never. Okay, I'm just just, just making sure. I'm I'm with you. No, no. Okay, I'm with you. But this idea that you have to, as prescribed, like, no, you don't. Man's been around a lot longer than Big Pharma. Right. Man, mankind has been around a lot longer. You'd be pretty amazed that you know i had all four of my front teeth filed down and caps put on them and stuff no pain medic medicine at all just novocaine and you'd be surprised how fast the pain goes away like two and a half three days in two days it becomes bearable in four days it's you don't even notice it but if you're so you know oh i'm not supposed to feel pain you know it goes on and on and on Day seven, day eight, day nine, day ten, day eleven. You, you, when you're focused on pain, and I equate it to withdrawals. And I've had so many different times I've kicked dope. Right. And when, whenever I would kick dope at home, or in a Los Angeles rehab, I would always just have these excruciating withdrawal things and be just hypomanic and you know demanding more meds and and just ridiculous and many a time after four days i would just go get high right right but when i was in jail and there was no possibility of getting high i accepted that these are the signs and symptoms and i just was looking forward to when they remitted when they went away Instead of trying to amp them up to justify going and using or justify demanding coral hydrate or whatever, you know what I mean? And then back in the, and I had, that was in the late 80s, early 90s, but even as, as early as 85, 86, when there was no way to get heroin 
pretty much across the United States. I could get it in Albuquerque, New Mexico, because our bass player Rob was from there. I could get it in Austin, because friends of mine live there. I could get it in Chicago, because John Holland, the great John Holland, who's sober now for decades, uh, lived there. I could get it in New York. I could get it in Boston in the combat zone. But many cities, I didn't know where to get it. So, you know, if we were heading out north northeast right meaning there were tour routes out of la you went to vegas you went to to salt lake city denver denver salt lake city the lincoln nebraska you know what i mean if you went that route there was no heroin you were just gonna be sick would you look because i used to love looking in those towns just looking you know what i mean yeah but in the late 80s you could find it pretty much anywhere but this is mid 80s right This this is like two year sentences for you know four bags of dope right right you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so so you know that that route i would just be sick and literally by the fourth day i would feel fine right i'd get drunk and play a show and no i wouldn't even feel it but if i laid in bed at home with my girlfriend like tending to me or whatever i'd be sick until i used again right And I equate that with the pains and all this worry about pain from tooth problems. Like most of, a lot of people I know have gotten loaded in relapse after over going to the dentist. Right. Well, the second that shit is in them, right? I mean, the second that shit is in you, you are reminded of this. described it so great. He was five, four and a half years sober and he was at normal surgery and he said to the nurse, what is that? They had a thing in a a stint in his arm and she said, this is liquid Valium. And as soon as it hit him, he said his last thoughts were, I wonder if they still sell dope at MacArthur Park. (laughs) Right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, it's unreal. So I've always remembered that. So, and I'm not saying everybody has to be like me. I'm just sharing my truth. Like, there are no excuses. But once somebody's killed themselves or died of a drug overdose, who cares why? So what you, when you talk it's, about... It doesn't seem to be helping anybody. No, it, but like, I, think, I think it's helping. You know who it helps? I think it helps his family. I think it helps his girlfriend to try to poke through the minutia so she doesn't have to deal with the grief. You know what I'm saying? It's like staying busy. You know, to to try to not have to deal with the the overwhelming sadness in, in the I moment. Can't, you know, I can't imagine it. You know, I was there, and it was like these people, his family, have been on the edge of their seat for um, you know, his, for most of his life. I mean, he would he would tell stories on Dopey about being fourteen and pee wee football, and between plays, be smoking crack. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Chris was major league like that. He was insane. He was he was hardcore. Yeah. You know, I, I, I always tell the story of this friend of mine's mom who, you know, he was just an old running buddy of mine named Todd. I've written stories about him and stuff and he was one he was the funniest guy I've ever known. Just right. the funniest. And we were in that rehab together and then I got sober and but he was still struggling. He's the one that stole all the guitars from my house. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I even laughed then. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. And I felt like it was karma or whatever. But um, so when Todd, Todd's hustle was his mom, who his mom and dad had gotten a divorce and she had gotten the house and some chunk of money that was in a savings account and some sort of whatever and 
and Todd had accessed that account somehow through the mail stuff that came to their house or whatever. And he had slowly chipped away at it and spent like $275,000. And his mom never knew he would steal the thing. It was just like stealing your, your report card when you get home. Right. Right. And so, you know, push came to shove and I was friends with her and I was trying to help him for years. And then finally I just said to her, like, cause she had had enough. She was like, retired and like what the hell am i chasing my 30 year old five-year-old son around rehab after rehab it's been going on for 20 years or 15 years and i said why she i go what do you what would you do if you if you had your brothers and she said you know i'd move back home to connecticut be around my family my sister and and i said well you should think about doing that and eventually she did right and he was just alone in la wandering around he was staying in the Salvation Army, and he stayed at my house when he was sober. He's the guy I wrote. I wrote the song "Boy at a Bus Stop" on the Bicycle Thief record. Okay, have you ever heard that song, uh-huh. "Boy at a Bus yeah. Stop"? That's about Todd. So, so I get the call. He's in rehab. He died in rehab, and I'm like, "Holy fucking shit!" And so I call her, and she cried. And, whatever and then a couple weeks later because it took time to orchestrate the whole thing at the funeral back in connecticut and and she called me after the funeral i can i couldn't afford to go out there but and she was crying and she was so sad and i said oh my god you know you've done everything you shouldn't feel guilty and she was saying i feel so guilty bob and i was like you shouldn't feel guilty and she goes it's not the kind of guilt that you think and i said like what, what are you talking about? And she goes, I feel guilty that I feel relieved that it's finally over. Right, right. And I thought, we haunt these fucking people even when we're dead. Yeah, no, for real. No, I mean, I, I, I had, I told you when you, it was so crazy that you just called me out of the blue to tell me that your message not to die the three days before Chris dies. I mean, how crazy is that? I know. What made you call me? I just think about you guys all the time. It's my favorite podcast, and and I think I think you, me, and the guys in Milwaukee, and Chris and Mike Mart, we're like we're we're people that are sober that are open minded. I think that that a lot of sober community has closed their mind to helping these kids or trying to even tolerate these kids. Right? They are pretty insufferable. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it seems like. There's we have this bond of the don't die Milwaukee guys and the, the friends of mine in L.A. and and you two that we just have a bond that we're like sober and we're open minded and we can laugh at ourselves and we can criticize and we can we can say whatever we want with we the intention of like we're sober and we want to carry the message to an alcoholic who still suffers. That's what I try to live by. Yeah, me too. And and I and it just. So I think about you guys, you know, a lot. And, like, that at least there's, like, 20 of us. <laughs> well, somebody, though, somebody now who has... Now there's 19. Yeah, now, now, there, now there's now there's 19, right? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. But I know that, like, Chris is so funny, too, man. In the last, like, four episodes, he would, like, talk about the afterlife constantly. He would just, he would say that... He would say, if my father dies, I know I'm going to have to really act better because he's going to see what I'm doing. He said so many things that were just like such red flags and I didn't notice. Or I noticed, but I just, I just believed him. You know, I just, I just believed what he had to say, you know, because I'm an idiot. 
But like, what Listen, the fuck? When, when you think about the first times I think we were on the podcast and we were really reliving that six months he was in Las right. Vegas. He knew as soon as you go talk to those fucking doctors and psychiatrists, you're just trying to use. He knew that. Yeah. So, so, you know, he he, he had self awareness and he had awareness of his disease and then he also had this you know this dance with the devil you know jump over a speeding car running at driving at you attitude about it yeah no definitely and if you've been smoking crack since you're 14 you might think that way too yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i know he was so stubborn and he really thought he, the funny thing is you know, we, we lost a bunch of people to fentanyl on the show, and he would always say on the show, if me and him were using when there was fentanyl, there's no way Dopey would exist. And then he goes out and he dies from fucking fentanyl. It's like, yeah. it's just like, it's fucking crazy. I mean, maybe I it's not crazy. It's just him. sad. I was talking about him the other day and, and, and about the fentanyl and, the, you know, there's the, he's the second friend of mine that I had talked to about fentanyl. Like, if we were, if we go out we could die we'll probably die and same thing if if i was if there was how about this me and you know that friend of mine that everybody knows i'm friends with um he and i talk about suboxone if suboxone existed when we were trying to get sober we would have never gotten sober right i mean there's a lot stacked against this generation of addicts suboxone fentanyl um the access the everywhere access to heroin the social acceptability of heroin. Right. I mean, you know, cocaine was always socially acceptable when I and when I was using, but heroin was never socially acceptable. It started to be with the heroin chic about 91, yeah. 92, Nirvana with James and Dixon shit. and yeah. Nirvana. Yeah. And then when Kurt died and all that, oh, that heroin is cool thing just dissolved the way. Heroin is not cool. You know, and it never really has been socially acceptable until the last five years with the advent of rehab and like, oh, there's no difference between beer and heroin. The fuck there isn't. Right, right. You drink a beer today, you're not going to die of it. Right, right. It's so ridiculous and it makes me so angry when people say, oh, it's all the same. No, heroin is its own particular, specific, separate whole universe. Right, right. Just a monster. Just a monster, you know. And and even if you have it, and I've had friends that had for fourteen years sobriety died, junkies. So you're never free of it. Now I have a bunch of friends that are alcoholics and were sober 10, 12 years, and they're drinking and smoking pot. Nothing bad's happening in their life. I had a friend who had fourteen years sobriety, went out for a week, and he was dead. Right. That doesn't happen to people drinking and smoking pot. I'm sorry. It's important. It's an important uh, fucking difference, you know, distinction to make. And um, yeah, people think and that they you can. You know what? I want to. I want to say this too. The other friend of mine that I talked to you about, Kieran, that died of the fentanyl, and I had told him, "Dude, there's fentanyl and dope. You can't be doing this." And he's like, "No, no, no. I got a straight connect. It's you know, he's like been a dope fiend for thirty years. Right. He tells me there's no. He's not doing any fentanyl now. He's got this get dope from." This dude that you know, it's down in Florida. When the autopsy came back, there was no heroin in his system, none. Right, right. It was all fentanyl. Right, right. So they're selling it, saying it's heroin and it's fentanyl. 
Well, do you think, and they know? Do you think they know? You think the dealers know what they have? Yeah, they they saw, well, the low level, street level dealers are the little junkies trying to survive. I don't know that they know completely, right? But, but the the distribution chain people, they know, right? Well, the I higher mean, fish know. I'll say it. I'll say it until somebody will listen that has some some say in power. If you a kilogram of heroin costs fifty thousand dollars, and the street value, if you cut it and distribute it right, it may it's worth two hundred thousand dollars. So it's a hundred and fifty thousand dollar profit. All that risk. A kilogram of pure fentanyl costs four thousand dollars, and if diverted, if if diluted right and distributed correctly, it's worth thirty million dollars. You think there's going to be any heroin on the streets in the next in two years? No. Not to mention how it's you not. produce fentanyl is way easier than how you produce heroin or, or just more cost-effective, you know what I mean? There's no way to get that potency of heroin into the United States. It doesn't come like that. No. So so the risk-reward to fentanyl dealing and or posing fentanyl as heroin is so high, even I want to do one run of it and make $30 million. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. You know what I mean? So I, 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 you know, another thing about Chris Dye, I like Rob is the bass player and Tony sponsor was the first kind of junkie that I had been sober with and loaded with and relapsed with and like the Chris relationship with. And when he died, I hadn't seen him in like a year and a half or whatever. And I just decided that he's not really dead. I just don't see him anymore. Right. Right. You know what I mean? That's easier for tertiary friends like me or whatever. I just like to, and it's gotta be hard for his girlfriend or wife and you and his family. Family, I think was better prepared. They've been living. Oh yeah. They were told, I'm sure they had the whole thing, the whole funeral planned out years ago. But but he had fooled them with five years getting his shit together. You know, they were like yeah. they thought they were going to have a happy ending. You know, they really did, and that's just the worst. You know what I mean? The well, rug- here's, here's, this is this is my new thing. The happy ending is today if things are good and you're happy. Well, that's brilliant. You got to stop thinking in terms of happily ever after. We're talking about really straight older people who wanted to see him have no, but kids. You know what I'm saying. Of course, no, of like, course. You know, like. Today is our day. You know, I treat every day like Christmas. And and it's just like, no, every day is special because you don't know how many you've got. No, I appreciate that. Now, we're getting super late. I want to know, can you hit hit him with the dopey? Give a dopey story just for Chris, an old one. Oh, okay. Well, Chris and I kind of bonded over rehab stories. So, so... The one I'm most famous for is everybody knows you don't have to escape from rehab, right? That all you have to do is say, I don't want to be here and just pack your shit and leave. Right. But but at Exodus, this famous rehab that where all musicians went in the late 80s in Los Angeles, they loved me so much there. Like Harold Owens, who now runs Music Cares, was the counselor there. There was this other counselor, Lori, who was great. Kathy Kilgar, this great nurse, was the main nurse. Dr. Murphy was the doctor. And they really cared about their patients, unlike rehab today. Right. <laughs> so, so if I was going to leave, which I had, a, I was kind of known for, 
they would all talk to me, especially Harold Owens, because I had a special relationship with him, still do, 30 years later. But, um, but so I was deciding to leave, and I decided to leave, and, and there was a smoking area that was enclosed, and it was a really tall one-story building, right, this part of this wing of this hospital. And so... I didn't want to just go out the front door because I knew I'd have to talk to Kathy and then I'd have to wait for Harold and talk to him. And then, you know, and they, they all had their own ways of trying to make you stay. Right. And so I just pushed the, the table that was in the smoking area against the wall and then climbed up. And it was a really tall one story building. I climbed up and it, I couldn't reach the roof. So then I, you know, the umbrella thing, I took the umbrella thing down and bent it and leaned it against the wall and kind of <laughs> scooted up right, and, uh-huh. and used my foot at the top of the umbrella thing to climb up on the roof of the hospital and then run away. Like I was escaping, you know, a Nazi concentration right. camp or something. And, and I came back a few days later, um, you know, and they said, what the fuck are you always for that umbrella? You bent that umbrella. <laughs> It's like you could have just left out the front door. What are you breaking the umbrella for? I left my clothes there and everything. Right. And so, and you know, and this has a sad kind of junky side to it. So years later, when Kurt Cobain was there, four days before he died, that's kind of a legendary story that you know he Bob Forrest escaped from here, and you don't even have to escape, and he <laughs> did the same thing. He did. Yeah, and. We all know what happened four days later. Yeah. You know, and I just feel like that's it. Like, I could have been, like, he could have been, that's what could have happened to me, and he could be a drug counselor. That's, nobody knows. It's all so mysterious. Yeah. I we think... all do the same things. We all have the same, you know, obsession with drugs. We all have the same kind of makeups about drugs and we all have the same ability to not to not die to succeed it's just it's why why is kurt kill himself and chris zodin you and me are sitting here talking i don't get it i don't understand it and i think it i think not understanding it makes a lot like 95 percent of the people that are sober very uncomfortable so they then go about saying why they're sober and why kurt and chris are dead and I just don't, uh, I, I don't believe that. There's no quantifiable I, fucking answer. It's all well, a big mystery. Well, you steps and prayer and go to enough meetings and all that, uh, that stuff. It's you nice know, to, it's I, nice to think that there is some sort of like spiritual defense that you could dip into some defense fund that can save your ass from, from a bad injury and a bad thought. But I don't think that that's necessarily the truth either, but I think it well, helps. Here's, here's the interesting thing. I, I, as much as I'll criticize, I embrace, I am convinced to my innermost self that I am a junkie and that if I, that I will die if I use again and I don't want to die. Yeah. Even in my darkest moments, I don't want to die. There's many reasons why initially because I wanted to play music again, or I was so happy to be alive and have survived nine years of that then later on because i you know had children and, right. and you know i uh, midway through that i wanted to become excellent at my craft and become a drug counselor and it, so the inspirations to not die have have changed over the years but it, there's always been something there's always been a go-to reason why i don't want to die whether it's i want the 
to make the bicycle thief record or I want to be the best counselor in the world or I want to be the best dad in the world. There's always, you have to have something that's your go-to thing. Right, a commitment to living, a purpose. Yes. No, I hear you. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. You know, I, I just live uh, for dopey. Forget fatherhood. I just, yeah, I, I only what do don't you die. Do about dopey? I don't know. You can't find another Chris, so you shouldn't try. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, you know what I thought, I, you know, because I, this is how junkies are. So Chris is dead like two days. Yeah. And I'm already thinking, who could replace him? Yeah, no shit. That's everybody. Everybody's like, you know, I could take a train to Manhattan every week and I could do it. And I'm like, just. Well, I know what I'm thinking is uh, what would be even crazier is like somebody who's not sober that's living this life. And let's see if you can, if, if good can win over. That, that is just a a horrible idea. A horrible, horrible (laughs) idea. Well, I was thinking of Artie. <laughs> well, dude, check it out. I text Artie after Chris died. I said, hey, man, uh, Chris died. And he texted back, oh, you mean your podcasting partner? And I texted back, <laughs> yeah. And I never heard from him again. That was it. That was it. And I don't blame Artie. Artie's, he was your last guest, right? Uh, he was, was he our last guest? Yeah, he was our last guest. He was yeah. our last guest. He was great. It was crazy. It was fucking... He's the craziest. He, He's the funniest. He was so funny and so crazy. And I, you know, I, I mean, like, listen, if Artie wants to do it, fuck, I would love to have Artie do it. But Artie, it would be so much better if Artie was sober. And I think we're going to rotate people no, until yeah, until yeah, it's good. Rotate, but I, I just really think if, if, you know, somehow we're not embracing... Like, when I was going to AA in the 80s, there were drunk people in the room. And they did share... And nobody told him to shut up. Right. People maybe laughed. Right. There used to be this guy, Billy Sunshine, and he come he went to three meetings a day in West Hollywood, the drug and alcohol center in West Hollywood. And he was he was either fried from acid, nobody could really tell whether he was drunk or not, but he was just he was just part of our gang. Didn't matter. Right. It was Billy Sunshine. He's badass. Listen, I think you should should think about sitting in the Chris chair for a little bit. Just put it yeah, in your head. I love it. Put I it, love it. Put Let's it in your head. Some, some stories from, from, you know, you were able to get people to talk about things in that way that we joke about. Yeah. I always, whenever somebody asks, what is dopey? I say, you know, like when you get really cool friends of yours after a meeting and you're talking and you just tell drug stories, that's what dopey is. <laughs> that's when dopey is at its best for real. <laughs> so anything I can do, but well, it's sad about Chris. It's but, the worst, but, but we're going to do our know. best, man. We're going to do our best. And, and I really appreciate you calling well, I'm in. I'm concerned about you. You're the living and, and you know, you got to stay sober. No, I, I please. I, it's more likely that I go to space than I get high at this moment. You know, it's not, it's not on my radar. I, I really, I am happy. You know, every day isn't Christmas for me, but I'm totally happy. You know what I mean? Like my no, life. I hate Christmas. But, yeah. No, but dude, I, I'm I, Jewish I, and I love like Christmas. Christmas. I love Christmas. No, I love all that me, shit. To me, I like getting presents for people, and I like surprising people, and I like that that. That, oh, just because it's Wednesday, like you no, know, it's because you live in L.A. Come to New York for Christmas, man, with the snow and all <laughs> I, the fucking stores and yeah. shit. It's like I it's went different. to Rockefeller Plaza with Elvis, like when he was two or something, and just you have all these appointments of when you can go. Like 
just give us some fucking skates and let us get out there. I was just couldn't <laughs> believe how organized it was. Don't go there. Are you the 315 group? Don't go there. That's the fucking end of the world. Don't go there. You come downtown and we'll take a walk and it'll feel it'll feel like it'll be beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. And I'm Jewish. I love that shit. Um, All right. Well, that that me coming out to the East Coast isn't over yet. It's just been put on hold until I get this Long Beach thing off the ground. All right. Well, do your thing, Bob. And thank you for calling and be in touch, man. Be in touch. I love you, man. Hang in there. Don't use no matter what. All right. Okay. Love you too, man. Take care. Bye bye. All right. So that went super long, but what a what an honor to have Dr. Drew and Bob Forrest on Dopey. Chris would have uh, cut this one off a long time ago, and I'm sorry I didn't cut it off sooner, Chris, but it was cool, man. It's cool to have them uh, call and talk about you and talk about what happened and everything else. So, as we like to say on the show, uh, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, send me some fucking memes because Chris isn't alive and I'm going to need to try to carry on the dopey Instagram without him. Um, Follow us on Twitter. Keep following us on Reddit. Thank you, Cormac, for that. Next week, look for a, a co-host, somebody sitting in here. They will not be Chris, but uh, they will be here. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and I don't want to fucking say toodles, but, um, you know, Chris is dead, so fucking toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had Suckers make me mad and I don't want to call my dad and it's all I ever had.